0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au i got something I
1: want to talk about to you.
0: Just
1: You're on 3CR, and that music means it's time for Communication Mixdown. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting the show this week, and my guest is Kristen Dume, a professor of history at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the U.S. Kristen's research focuses on the intersections of gender, religion, and politics in recent American history, and her latest book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation is a study of white evangelical views of masculinity, from the Cold War to the present, culminating in the election of Donald Trump. Now, the book was published in May 2020, and by the end of June this year, it made number four on the New York Times bestseller list. Kristen Dumais spoke with me from Grand Rapids, Michigan, last Monday, and I began by asking her why she wrote the book.
0: I actually began the research for this book more than 15 years ago. It was after our students at my Christian university brought to my attention this burgeoning literature on Christian manhood at the time. So this was in the early 2000s. Uh, i had been teaching a class on uh, US history, lectured on Teddy Roosevelt to show them how gender, especially masculinity worked in history in tandem with religion and race and foreign policy and American empire. And they told me there's this book you have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart, which sketches a very militant, militaristic conception of Christian manhood. And I was fascinated at the time for a couple of reasons. One, the book didn't draw a whole lot on the scriptures. Instead, it looked to Hollywood heroes for models of Christian masculinity and to mythical warriors. And at the same time, this was in the early years of the Iraq war. And we had all this survey data showing how white evangelicals were and away more likely than other Americans to support that war support preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture. And I just wondered what one of these things might have to do with the other. So I researched that for about a year, year and a half, ended up setting it aside because I was working on other projects. And it wasn't until the fall of 2016 that I dusted off that old research because what I was hearing around evangelical support for Donald Trump at that time, the enthusiasm I was sensing reminded me so much of what I had read in that earlier literature about what it meant to be a Christian man, to be aggressive, even ruthless, to do what needed to be done, to use violence to achieve order. That was at that point that I decided I needed to write this book.
1: So there was quite a gap between when you started that. Yes. And then you actually sat down to do the work. So it's about white evangelicalism. Can you just tell me something about evangelicalism in the US, like some background to that? it
0: has a varied history. At times, it was really a disruptive social force because evangelicals believe in individual conversion and in uh, transformed lives. And that can, in many cases, disrupt the status quo. Sometimes that's resulted in arguments for racial equality. It's uh, resulted in arguments for female uh, preaching It's also connected to the assertion of the status quo, the defense of white supremacy, and particularly in more recent uh, American history. A lot of evangelicals prefer to define it as purely a theological category, and so they'll point to certain um, distinctives, biblicism, the authority of the scriptures. Cruciscentrism, the centrality of the cross of Jesus, conversionism, this born again experience, and then activism and evangelism. So you're acting out of these beliefs. In the American context, this only partially gets at what evangelicalism has come to be because it is not just a set of theological beliefs. This really became clear to me when I understood that if you look at those evangelical distinctives, those theological doctrines, The vast majority of black Protestants could check off all of those boxes, but the truth is the vast majority of black Protestants do not identify as evangelical. As a cultural historian, I treat evangelicalism as a cultural identity, as much as it is a theology. And I really examine how cultural allegiances interact with theological beliefs. And and that's how I examine evangelicalism in America today.
1: So from what you're saying, there are many evangelicalisms, and they've changed over history as well.
0: Very much so.
1: What are the core beliefs of white evangelicals, the people you're talking about in your book?
0: Conservative white evangelicals emphasize gender difference or gender traditionalism, advocate for patriarchal authority and female submission tend to, in significant numbers, embrace Christian nationalism. The idea that America was founded as a Christian nation, that America has a special role to play, that America must be defended. So those are kind of some of the core beliefs. Then you can look at sociological data and see how A whole lot of other political and cultural ideals grow out of these core commitments. And so you can see white evangelicals as outliers when it comes to views of immigration and refugees and support for law enforcement, opposition to Black Lives Matter movement. So there's a whole slew of political allegiances that tend to go along with conservative white evangelicalism.
1: And attached to it from what you're saying.
0: Attached to these core beliefs, one of the things that came through very clearly in my research was For decades, conservative evangelicals have been advancing this kind of us versus them mentality. God is on our side. So whether we're talking Christian America, whether we're talking about evangelical orthodoxy, you know, evangelicals as the faithful remnant who are then tasked with restoring American Christianity, tasked more broadly with restoring American greatness. So this us versus them militancy really does move to the center of many evangelicals' faith. And that corresponds to many of these political issues and these broader cultural
1: identities. And as Kristen Dumais described what U.S. white evangelicals stood for, it was easy to see the links with the ideas promoted by Christian right activists here in Australia. As Australia's current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is Pentecostal, a matter he's been very open about, I asked Kristen whether Pentecostalism was part of evangelicalism, because I was beginning to understand that it's all quite complex
0: many pentecostals have identified separately over against evangelicals traditionally and within evangelicalism too we could draw distinctions between fundamentalists and evangelicals and you know historically these are important distinctions to draw i argue that these distinctions matter less today because of the role of this evangelical popular culture so many people are immersed in more than one strand you can be watching televangelism and get a pretty big dose of Pentecostalism. Meanwhile, you're reading books coming from more fundamentalists or listening to radio programs that are you know, more mainstream evangelical or more fundamentalist. And so the average American evangelical today is actually shaped by many of these different strands. And I think that we've seen the distinctions between these really start to fade instead people unify around some of these political and cultural beliefs so if you are on the right side of gender roles and gender distinctions and patriarchy then you're with us you're in this big tent and if you are a feminist or affirming of lgbtq folks then you are on the other side and you are defined outside of the fold all of which is to say, yes, Pentecostalism is part of this movement, an important part, particularly when you look at some of the megachurches, some of the early support and steadfast support for Donald Trump in terms of politics, in terms of Christian media, definitely a part here.
1: If you've just joined us on Communication Mixdown, I'm speaking with Kristen Dumay, a professor of history at Calvin University in the U.S., about her book, Jesus and John Wayne. How white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Kristen has explained that while there are many versions of evangelicalism, Pentecostalism is clearly in the fold, and people tend to identify around political and cultural beliefs rather than religious doctrine, and in particular in opposition to social movements like feminism, Black Lives Matter, and equal rights for LGBTIQ people. But As Kristen also points out in her book, a small proportion of evangelicals do not support these views, and she would have counted the people of the town where she grew up as among them. She describes what happened when Donald Trump came to visit in January 2016, an event that caused her to revisit the book that she'd started but put aside over a decade ago.
0: This was very early on in the primary season. A lot of people in the Christian community didn't quite know what to make of him. There were a lot of questions. Uh, At the same time, already by that point, there had been a lot of interest, a lot of enthusiasm for months already. Enthusiasm from the grassroots within evangelical circles, not from leadership. Leaders were, for the most part, skeptical of Trump. So I tuned in. I had to, it was my alma mater, my hometown. When I watched, it was really a jarring experience. First, this was one of his, his first appearances with Robert Jeffress, who had become one of his staunchest evangelical supporters. Jeffress opened with prayer, a very culture wars prayer. And then Trump came on stage, started playing to the right-wing evangelical crowd. And my first thought was he does not know where he is, right? This is my, my alma mater. This is not who we are. But the crowd responded. There was so much enthusiasm there. I started to wonder who those people actually were. And I was literally looking to see, are there any faces? Who are these people? Are these my people? And that was the speech where he went on to give his famous, I could shoot anyone. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and not lose any supporters. And that turned out to be quite prophetic. He understood the nature of the devotion that was already present and would only grow. It was a jarring experience for me to see that. Those were my people. This was my home. And I really thought he had it wrong.
1: You pose the question so many people have asked. How could family values conservatives support a man who flouted every value they insisted they held dear? And then you say that this is, in fact, not an aberration. By the time Trump had arrived, conservative evangelicals had already traded a faith that privileges humility and elevates the least of these to one that derides gentleness as a province of wusses. So that's from the introduction. Of yes. The book.
0: Well, let me first say I started the research long before I started writing this book. And in the ensuing years, when I set it aside to work on other projects, I didn't stop paying attention to many of the men who had been promoting this very militant conception of Christian manhood. And what I observed over the next decade was one after another of these men become embroiled in scandal in abusive power and often in sexual abuse either directly as perpetrators or indirectly supporting friends of theirs who were. So in the days after the Access Hollywood tape release when Donald Trump was on camera joking about assaulting women That really the attention of the country and I think the world turned to white evangelicals who were by then October of 2016, who his strongest supporters, they were his base, you know, what are they going to do? Um, surely family values, evangelicals cannot support this man now, but of course they did a couple wavered ever so briefly prayed about it. And then were right back behind supporting Donald Trump. And that's really when it clicked for me because I realized we've seen this before. We have seen this so many times in evangelical spaces. Not just perpetrators, but the communities coming around blaming victims and defending the perpetrators. I knew this was a repeated pattern, and that's in fact what the last chapter of the book covers. But that's when I came to see that, historically speaking, we have to place the assertion of white patriarchal authority. At the Heart of Family Values Evangelicalism. And when we do that, then this isn't such a conundrum anymore. Then evangelical support for Donald Trump makes a whole lot more sense.
1: It made me very skeptical of the whole rhetoric of family values. I thought that's not what it's about. It's about power. That's what I felt at the time. Exactly. I love the titles of your chapters. Chapter two is... John Wayne will save your ass. I want to know how John Wayne got into both the title of your book and gets a whole chapter. (laughs) Well, sorry, not guess the whole chapter is the title of the chapter.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne. I should make that very clear. You know, when I was looking at this literature on Christian masculinity, what was immediately striking to me was how little this image of Christian manhood was based on the Christian scriptures or on the image of Christ. Instead, writers were drawn to mythical heroes and to secular heroes and to Hollywood heroes. Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart was a huge favorite in the early 2000s. But also figures like Teddy Roosevelt, like General MacArthur, General Patton, random cowboys, soldiers, and the actor John Wayne kept popping up. And this was interesting to me because John Wayne was not particularly known for his uh, Christian lifestyle. Very similar, in fact, to Donald Trump today. But I came to see how evangelicals were drawn to these secular heroes precisely because they had not been formed by traditional Christian. And virtue. You know, think about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-restraint. These were not really the ingredients for the warrior heroes that they were drawn to. So instead they went outside of their tradition that they embraced secular icons of masculinity that essentially undercut some of the core teachings of Christianity. Things like love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy, turn the other cheek. They embrace secular models and turn them into models of Christian masculinity and in doing so change Christianity itself so that ultimately the Jesus of the Gospels gets remade in the image of these secular warrior heroes. And that's the corruption that I'm talking about in the subtitle of the book. John Wayne is a symbol of that. He's by no means the only warrior hero, good guy with a gun that evangelicals are drawn to, but he really symbolizes this appeal.
1: And I'm interested in the consumerism that you've talked about, the evangelical culture of consumption. What do you mean by that?
0: When evangelicals kind of banded together in the 1940s in the National Association of Evangelicals, before that, they had been kind of scattered and they felt like they didn't have the influence that they needed and wanted over broader American culture. They knew that popular culture was going to be key to this. And so they dreamed of having magazines with subscribers in the tens of thousands. And they knew that radio was going to be key to reaching the masses and Christian publishing and Christian bookstores. They had all these plans. And what's remarkable as a historian reading these in the sources, is knowing that within 15 years, they will have achieved these beyond their wildest dreams. So within evangelical spaces, this consumer culture becomes absolutely critical. Thousands of bookstores, even in the smallest towns, right? My little hometown in Iowa had one bookstore and it was a Christian bookstore. It's an incredible distribution system where Christian publishers can get their products into the hands of people across the country. These products tend not to focus on theology so much because that would uh, splinter the market. Methodists are going to differ from Lutherans, they're going to differ from Pentecostals. So instead, they tend to focus on Christian living how to be a Christian wife, how to be a Christian man, how to raise your children. Radio, same thing. This becomes an incredibly formative influence for generations of American evangelicals. They are deeply formed by this consumer culture. These books are selling in the millions. This ends up shaping evangelical identity.
1: Kristen Dumais, a professor of history at Calvin University in the U.S. And if you've been with us since the beginning of the show, you must be wondering by now how Kristen's book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals, Corrupted a faith and fractured a nation has been received in the U.S. And that's coming up right after this message.
0: So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo.
1: Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile? And adds a spring to your step. What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on
0: 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan.
1: You're on 3CR and it's great to have your company on this chilly Melbourne evening. And we hope you're managing throughout another snap lockdown. In the first part of the program, Kristen Dumais told us about why she wrote Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. I asked Kristen how people had responded to the book, particularly in the evangelical community.
0: So many have written to me and said some version of this is the story of my life, but I never understood how all of these pieces fit together. And thank you. And the humility with which so many conservative evangelicals have received this book is frankly astounding to me. Many of these stories in this book were actually new to my readers who felt they knew this culture. They knew the people so well and never understood this side of things. So it's really been an amazing response among evangelical readers, which isn't to say there is no pushback. Interestingly, much of that is coming from more secular spaces. Uh, There are some conservative religious folks who are not fans, but the vast majority have really embraced this book, as far as I can tell.
1: In the embracing of it, are they seeing a need for change?
0: Absolutely. And so many readers have said, you know, not only are they seeing for the first time what they were a part of, what they participated in, also what they were complicit in a lot of them had been sensing things are off. When I read the scriptures and then when I get caught up in the the religious right, this is how you vote and this is how you should treat your neighbors. There had been a sense of disconnect and this book just maps it out exactly how we got to where we are now. And it deconstructs some ideas of, you know, quote unquote, traditional, traditional values, God ordained gender roles throughout all of time. One thing that history does very effectively is it kind of pokes holes in those theories and says, actually much of this is a rather recent invention. Let me show you How this came to be and that brings people to a space where they can ask as christians is this where we want to be is this faithful to our understanding of the scriptures and if not what do we need to do to change it
1: i'm thinking of the moment that this book has come into because what we have is a change in administration the biden administration is a major change
0: this book is coming at a time where the conversation is happening so many individuals in these churches are asking, is this who we want to be? How did we get to where we are now? That said, on the institutional level, I'm seeing a lot of doubling down. I'm seeing the power of conservative donors and constituents. I'm seeing in many cases, reentrenchment and radicalization. People are saying, hey, no, we need to deal with these issues. We need to confront our own complicity in this. And they try for maybe months, maybe years Many of them end up losing their jobs, getting pushed out or just walking away. And then those institutions stay every bit as conservative, if not more reactionary than they were before. And that's really what I'm seeing right now. I would love to be wrong about this, but I'm not seeing much change in terms of the evangelical movement writ large, even as I'm seeing many individual evangelicals either walk away from the faith or embrace a very different understanding of evangelicalism.
1: I'm just wanting to ask how it felt for you writing this book. Was there a tension on the one hand between your commitment as a historian to tell the whole story (laughs) as best you can, and then as a practicing evangelical to protect the brand?
0: One of the reasons I ended up setting it aside was first, I had to finish another book and I I had three kids. (laughs) And so there's other things going on. But with this research in particular, one, I was shocked by what I was uncovering. It was so much more extreme, the rhetoric, uh, the teachings, the misogyny than I had anticipated. I had a really hard time figuring out, was this a fringe movement? On the one hand, these books were selling millions of copies. It didn't seem fringe, but it did, right? It was, it seemed extreme. And so I wasn't sure as a Christian myself, if I should be shining this bright light on what might be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to set this aside for a time. Only years later, after I had picked up this book and after I had come to see just how many other Christians had made similar choices to protect their ministries, to protect the brand, or in their words, to protect the witness of the church had decided not to engage honestly and forcefully what was actually happening behind the scenes. I saw how that had over the years, over the decades brought us to where we are now, how it had caused just incredible abuses and enabled those abuses to continue And I realized that I was implicated to a certain extent as well, by just having the idea, what is it to be a Christian scholar? On the other hand, once I decided to write this book, I didn't feel conflicted. I'm an evangelical in a broad sense. I don't really identify as an evangelical in terms of this cultural value system, certainly not at all. And I grew up in an ethnic subculture, Dutch reformed community. My mom was an immigrant from the Netherlands. My identity has never been caught up in American evangelicalism, even as I can look back and see all of the ways that I was shaped by this consumer culture. I grew up listening only to Christian music. I shopped at a Christian bookstore. I read this devotional literature. I kind of have one foot in one foot out. And so in writing this book, I didn't feel like I was betraying my people in any way. I felt like what I was doing was absolutely consistent with my role as a Christian scholar. I felt what was most important was to tell the truth.
1: Thank you so much for your time and uh, your insight.
0: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I wish you and your listeners all the best as we persevere through yet another stage of COVID and all that that entails.
1: And that was Kristen Dume. And I should point out that May is spelled M-E-Z in case you're looking her up. Kristen is a historian. At Calvin University in the U.S., her research focuses on the intersections of gender, religion and politics in recent American history. Her latest book, which we've been discussing, is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen is one of the keynote speakers at a symposium entitled Intellectual Authority and its Changing Infrastructures in North American and Australian Christianity, 1960s to 2010s. The symposium is on later this month, July 29th and 30th, and it's been organised by the Australian Catholic University and Deakin University. It's free, and it's online, and at ACU's Brisbane CBD Leadership Centre. For details of registration, go to intellectual authorityeventbrite Dot .com.au dot and you should get all the information there. And we're almost at the end of communication mixdown, but we still have time for a little bit of Bob Dylan's 1964 classic with God on our side, in which he satirizes the whole notion. Here's a very young Bob Dylan.
2: Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I started and brought up there the laws to abide. And that the land that I live in Has got on its side Oh, the history books tell it They tell it so well The cavalry's charge The Indians fell, the cavalry's charged, the Indians died, for the country was young, with God on its side. The Spanish American War had its day, and the Civil War too was soon laid away, and the names of the heroes I was made to memorize. With guns in their hands and God on their side
0: Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter.